follow along with us. Again, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we encourage you to take that home with you. It's our gift to you. Uh, you can take that, and uh, we appreciate uh, you making sure that all that we do and say here is based off of God's Word, uh, from which we hope, and uh, from which Martin Luther wrote that original hymn there, that one little word will fell him, and that word above all earthly powers is God's Word. And so we're grateful to be able to open it and have our own copy of Scripture on our laps this morning. So Luke 24 verses 13 through 35, again page uh, 885 in your pew Bible. And as, uh, by way of introduction, about 1,500 years ago, there was an emperor of Rome who built a tomb for his beloved sister. And uh, the small building was designed in the shape of a cross. And you can see that here. I'm going to pull that up for you. Beautiful building. I can't imagine getting buried in something like that. Uh, but it's in the shape of a cross, and it had vaulted ceilings in it. And as you uh, see the next photo there, it had mosaics of uh, swirling stars uh, kind of in an indigo sky all around. And the uh, focal point of this mosaic and its ceiling was the depiction of Jesus, the Good Shepherd. And you see him in that emerald paradise there, uh, beautiful mosaic. The Mausoleum of Gaul of Pisidia still stands in Italy and has been called by scholars the earliest and best preserved mosaic. Um, and so visitors uh, that come there to uh, admire this mosaic, and you see this on postcards sometimes, you see it in travel books, but when you get there, you are disappointed. You want to know why? As you enter the mausoleum, there are only a couple of tiny windows. So it is very, very, very dark. Add to that that all of those windows are kind of blocked by all of these tourists that are in there. And so you can't see any of the mosaic. Uh, the most artistically perfect mosaic monument, the inspiring vision of the Good Shepherd, is all hidden behind a veil of darkness. Now if you're in a hurry, if you're just trying to check it off as somewhere that you went in Italy to get to your next stop, as typical Americans are, we just want to get there, so that we saw it, and then move on, you will miss a stunning unveiling. Because this is what happens. With no advance notice, all of a sudden there's spotlights near the ceiling, and they turn on for a brief instant when a visitor realizes all you got to do is drop a coin into the wall. You drop a coin into the wall, the lights click on, and one visitor said, all of a sudden you hear, ah, and you look at it for about five seconds, and the lights go back out, until another tourist goes in there and drops another coin into the wall, and it happens over and over and over again. The, the sound comes out, and then the light goes out, right? Many of us are like these tourists in Italy. We have heard of changed lives. We have heard about the power of God's Word and how He changes our lives and transforms it. All from this ancient text. And so, we open it. Probably, for most Americans, the biggest and most complicated book people will ever read. 66 books, one story, many authors... And you have all this expectation that it worked for somebody else, that, that God's word came alive and it changed their lives. And people talk about how they hunger and they thirst for it. They talk about how they eat it. 
There's so many analogies to what the Word of God is, and you hear the preacher on Sunday, and it seems like, wow, he, he helped me see things that I've never seen before. And so you try to go home on Monday morning and open it up yourself, and you're, wow, it's not as easy as I thought. Why isn't this working for me? And we have this beautiful masterpiece in front of us, God's Word, the Bible. But the coin needs to drop so the lights will come on, right? Temptation here is, for many of us, you know, if I live closer to the time of Jesus, I would see. You know, if, if I was actually able to see Christ in the flesh and be around him and live in a closer proximity to those real events, I wouldn't be spiritually blind. I wouldn't be a skeptic. I would, I would know for sure. I'd be able to have faith that is founded upon fact. We'll be of good cheer this morning. Here in Luke 24, there are two men who are spiritually blind. They're actually talking with Jesus. They don't even know that it's Jesus. The coin hasn't dropped. The lights haven't come on because they haven't had a personal encounter with Christ yet, a personal experience with him. And so this morning we're going to see uh, how these men were spiritually blind, but also how to be spiritually healed so that we can worship Christ. Hear God's word, Luke 24, 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he, Jesus, said to them, what, what thanks? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going to go farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. 
They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour, and they returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Amen. Thanks be to God for his written word. We're going to see how these men were spiritually blind first. And so you see that they were spiritually blind first in their demeanor, right? Look with me at verse 17. At verse 17, it says, After Christ asked them the question, and they stood still looking sad. It's a wonderful little note that I didn't recognize until about two weeks ago. I think every pastor who is a pastor looks forward to preaching Luke 24. Uh, You probably have tons of resources, but yet God's Word, every time you come to it, you see something new. And this time, what stood out to me was, these men were sad. Jesus comes along and He says, what are you guys talking about? Isn't it interesting that Jesus looks like the ignorant one at first? He's the one that seems not to have a clue, and they stop, and their faces are sad. Now, what this is getting across is the spare that they are in. Being able to be your pastor now for, for a year and knowing your stories, I think that you can relate. Many times I'll see you in Palmer Hall, or we'll see you throughout the week, or just talking to you in our small groups in life, and I say, how are you doing? Or, or, or what's going on? How in the world are you really doing? And just asking that simple question, it brings you grief having to recount what is going on in your day. It brings you some sadness just to retell it. You almost wish that nobody would ask you at times, right? And that is what's going on here. It brings them sadness to rehearse what they had hoped wouldn't be true. They are sad because they have lost hope. Christians, they are sad because they are looking at life without a resurrection. They're sad. They're in despair. And so in verse 18, one of them, Cleopas, responds with this rhetorical question. Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? It has the force of saying, Have you been living underneath a rock? Are you the only one traveling from Jerusalem? And do not know what has been going on. If you are here this morning and you are struggling with the historical reliability of Christianity, if you are not a believer because you just don't know if your parents or your friends are just these faith-filled mad people, here is a good thing to challenge you on. Not only here, but later when Paul gives his testimony to King Agrippa, King Agrippa wants to dismiss him for being mad and, oh, you're just one of those faith-filled guys. And you know what Paul does? Paul says, you know that these things did not happen in a corner. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone knows. He appeared to 500 later. You know, all of these things. And so there is proof in this passage. not the point of this sermon. I want to give it. But there is proof here for the historic reliability of a real resurrection. Everybody knew it and talked about it and these events that Christ was crucified, that he came here. Don't miss the irony, though. Even though these events are so well known, nobody understands what they're really even about. He can say that Christ was crucified. He can talk about how he was one they were looking forward to, but yet they misunderstand the whole point. 
Jesus continues to feign his ignorance in verse 19. Look at this. And he said to them, what things? Right? In verse 20, these men are able to share all that they know about what has happened to Jesus historically. Some important things to look at here. Look at verse 19. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And if you've been tracking with us for this whole series of meals with Jesus, you know this. Christ was not crucified at the hands of the Romans because he broke laws. Why was he crucified? Look at verse 20. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Who is to blame? These religious leaders were threatened by him, and they are the ones that have rejected him. And verse 21, here is the root of their sadness. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. How ironic is their sadness. This very thing they wanted, the redemption of Israel, is the very thing Christ purchased by his death. Do you get that? We had hoped that he had been the one to redeem Israel. And what was Christ doing on the cross? Redeeming Israel. That they completely misunderstood the whole point. And it is ironic that the very thing they wanted, the very thing that was making them despair the most, was the very thing that Christ was doing on the cross. They were spiritually blind. They are blind to the resurrection. Look with me here at verses 22 through 24. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had, not seen, a vision, that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. That's the climax, but him they did not see. And who is standing there right before their eyes to see? Jesus! We didn't see Him, and yet they are talking to Christ face to face. They are looking into the very eyes of the one they had wished to see. Let's be practical here for a moment, and then we'll go back to the theological. How can these men know all of this stuff? How can these men know all of this biblical theology? and still be spiritually blind? How can they be speaking to the risen Christ and still living life without a resurrection? The essence of their spiritual blindness is the same thing as our spiritual blindness this morning. We don't realize how deeply we need to be redeemed. Notice again what Christ does here in verse 21. Their hope was this, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Redeem is kind of an old word, and so maybe you're new to church, you're new to the Bible, you don't understand it, but redeem just basically means to release from slavery. And Cleopas' problem was that he thought he only needed to be redeemed from political slavery. Oh, we thought Christ was going to redeem Israel from the Roman rule. But he was crucified. Oh, if we could just have political freedom. Oh, if we could just have economic freedom. Oh, if Christ could just make America great again. Then everything would be all right. 
You see, Cleopas thought the problems in his life that were the most important were all circumstantial. If Christ could just change my political circumstances. Some of you come here, if Christ could just change my economic circumstances, my, my job circumstances, my relational circumstances, my family, then everything would be fine. But Jesus actually came to release us from a much deeper spiritual bondage. Most of us are on the road to Emmaus. And we are waiting for the coin to drop, for the lights to come on. And you know what? If you're here this morning, if the lights haven't come on, it's okay. We all come starting like Cleopas. We all come to church starting like him. You come to church because you're scared at first. You're in a financial mess. You're in a relational mess. You have health problems. You've seen loved ones die. And you're coming and you're saying, Jesus, I need some kind of spiritual help so I can get through. Fill in the blank. That's where all of us start. We come as sufferers wanting help, not sinners needing a Savior. But until you see the depth of your slavery, that your circumstances won't actually free you if they change, they'll only enslave you more, the coin won't drop. If you're here just to add Jesus into your life, a plus one, the coin won't drop. You're using Jesus for something ultimate. And that is the prosperity gospel that even creeps into Bible-believing churches. We just want a therapeutic God to help us as opposed to a God that we surrender to, that we submit to, that we worship. So how are these men healed? Look with me at verse 25. And he said to them, this is Christ speaking, O foolish ones, who would believe in ev- or begin an evangelistic conversation like that? <laughs> Some of you think that my approach is not subtle, right? And that sometimes I just kind of swing two by fours and I just, I need to learn some tact. Here, I do. I have a lot of room to grow in. But here, a rebuke is what Christ chooses to help open their eyes. He rebukes them for being spiritually blind. And what does he rebuke them for? Has he rebuked them for not believing the women in verse 22? Oh, foolish ones, how could you not believe what the woman said? Does he rebuke them for not believing what the angel said? Does he rebuke them for what the disciples would have said in verse 24? No, what does he rebuke them for? He rebukes them for their disbelief in Scripture. Look with me again. Verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Believe what? All that the prophets have spoken. You haven't believed my word. What did the prophets speak? Well, Dan read this morning from Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses said this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Deuteronomy 18.15. David said in Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53.8, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who consider that he was cut off of the land of the living. There are more Old Testament prophecies that Christ could have taught and fulfilled. 
And Jesus moves them from ignorance to enlightenment by doing a Bible study. Look at verse 26 through 27. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures these things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a part of that seminar? Seriously, who in here would want to be a part of that seminar? From Moses all the way through the prophets, he went from Psalms 110, which he quoted, Isaiah 53, Daniel 11. And notice the order. Pat and I had a discussion this week. It was exciting. The order that Christ lays out an understanding of God's word before he reveals himself. He does a whole Bible study with unbelievers. That is why we are encouraging you to read the Bible with somebody. One-to-one Bible reading. Even somebody at work that you are praying with. Why? Because it is through God's word that it is being read and expounded that people's eyes are open. Amen? Christ teaches in verse 27 this seminar, and then they encourage him to stay a little longer. Look at verse 31. As they stay, he breaks bread. Just a little note there. We're not sure if this is communion. There's no mention of wine. It would not be uh, able or easy for us to prove that it was the Lord's Supper that they were reenacting. That's what opened their eyes. It just mentions the bread here. But in verse 31, and their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Their eyes were open. Did you notice that it's a passive verb there? Their eyes were open. It's the same passive verb in verse 16. Go back to verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. What does that mean? God's responsible. God's responsible for opening their eyes. Friends, none of us would believe unless God gave us the sight to see. Right? Amen? Many of you might just say, man, if Christ was here, if I just saw Christ, if I just had this miraculous encounter, if the Holy Spirit just fell on me in some fresh new way, then, but what does Christ do here? He points them to the text. He points them and he opens Scripture. And isn't there an irony in this passage as well? One more irony. When the two disciples can actually see Christ face to face, they don't recognize him. And then when they really do see Jesus for who he really is, guess what? He disappears. What does that teach us? Luke is trying to show you that you can have an encounter with the risen Christ through his word. You could be standing there face to face with him and not recognize and interpret all the events, but you can open up scripture and have the eyes of faith of the power of the Holy Spirit and you can meet with the risen Christ today. He is risen. He is risen indeed. You can meet the risen Christ. He can pull the grit away from your eyes. You can have your blindness you know, uh, healed. The coin can drop. The lights can turn on all through going to scriptures. That's the first step. Go to the scriptures. Perhaps your Bible has gotten dusty. Perhaps you've gotten out of a rhythm of reading it. Friends, can I just encourage you again? Read the Bible. If you're here and you don't know what you believe about Christ, you don't know all these other things, 
Some of those things are just tertiary. They're, they're on the side. They're circumstantial. They're, it's out there on the circumference. Come and read the Gospel and say, who is this Christ? Just see what He has to say about Himself. See that He accepts Thomas's worship and He only rebukes Thomas. Not for worshiping Him, but for being slow of belief. Come and see Revelation 19 next week where the angels are telling John about who this Christ is and John sees the angel and he wants to bow down and worship the angel. And what does the angel say? No, don't worship me. Worship the Lamb who was slain. The Lord Almighty. Come, meet that Jesus. Go to the Scriptures. Read the Bible with people. Now here's the hard part. Some of you go, I've tried reading the Bible, and I've read it as a science book, and it doesn't answer all my questions. Others of you come to the Bible and you read it as a modern-day version of Aesop's fables, how to live a moral life, how to have your best life now. There's a big preacher that sells millions of copies that has TV shows from Houston. Initials, J-O, kind of like Josh Owens, okay? Uh, no relation, all right? But he says you can read the Bible and you can figure out how to make your best life now. And all of that, the coin won't ever drop because it's not read with a Christ-centered, gospel-centered method. And that's what we want to teach you in our one-to-one Bible. That's what we want to have you read your Bible with other people because Christ is not just another signpost. He is the destination to which all the signposts point. The whole Bible, that is me, that is me, that is me. All throughout God's Word, God has spoken. And His greatest Word is the Word in John 1, Christ Jesus. All throughout God's Word, God has acted, and yet His greatest act is the act of redemption in Jesus Christ to save the world from their sins. Encourage people to pick up their Bible again. Oh, I'd believe if someone rose from the dead and came back and told my relatives. What does Christ say? They had the law and the prophets. They all point towards me. What will happen if you start reading God's Word? Here are three results that will change your life. First of all, notice that hearts will burn. Hearts will burn. Look with me here in verse 32. Then they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? Friends, Simply having a lot of religious knowledge is not saving faith. We should never think that Christians are Christians merely because they know a lot of facts about Jesus' life. Every sermon, we work hard here to challenge you on what is true conversion. I was raised in a church. I went to a Christian school. I had a lot of Bible knowledge. And you know what? This practically impacts how your elders take in new members. We don't give a theology exam. We do ask a simple question. What is the gospel? We want people to be able to share the gospel in their everyday life, and it's kind of hard to share the gospel if they can't share the gospel with elders, right? So we want them to know certain facts. It's not less than facts. But you know what your elders also want to hear? How you've had a personal encounter with Christ. How He's changed your life. How you've met Him. Not just cold, sanitized, faithless knowledge. And your hearts burn. True saving faith awakens your affections. It's not just a theology exam. Have your affections been awakened? Not just when we sing songs. 
But even when we preach for 40 minutes from God's Word, even when we read long passages in our services or at home in your Bible studies, do your, does your heart burn? Do you have an affection? True conversion awakens your affection, and true conversion also humbles and surrenders your will. Look at verse 33. This is the next thing that will result. Your feet will go. And they rose that same hour, and they returned to Jerusalem. Did you get that? They rose that same hour. It was dark by then. It was night. Probably dangerous to return on that seven-mile trip from Emmaus back to Jerusalem. Robbers along the way. But guess what? The good news of the message said, we got to share this. The hope of a resurrection. Because there is a resurrection, it changes everything. You say, Josh, this doesn't make sense unless there is a resurrection. You are right. It doesn't. I got oh, to get through this. I hate this part. If there's an, some way that you can research on Amazon how to make tears not come out of these eyes, that would be helpful. All right. <laughs> Rachel going to Tanzania for a year doesn't make sense without a resurrection. As your pastor, I look forward to stories every week of people sharing their faith. D Hart's going to LES, meeting with Mrs. Masterson for a parenting class at the public school only makes sense if there's a resurrection. All right, Linda Lohman going to a church with her daughter to get her the gospel and not coming to her local church, but serving, going somewhere else so that her daughter could go someplace closer and sacrificing being here with Ron every week doesn't make sense without the resurrection. People praying with colleagues at work over sick children doesn't make sense unless there's a resurrection. Paula sending co-workers daily emails of nuggets from God's word doesn't make sense unless there's a resurrection. Pat leaving the airline business to become a pastor doesn't make sense unless there's a resurrection. He was already close to heaven, okay? I mean, like, seriously, I guess a pastor's going to get you closer. I don't know. Actually, after this year, he might think, okay, anyways. Um, Emily Allen serving at a camp this summer away from her family doesn't make sense without what? A resurrection. Hang out with me. Share your stories. I love all of these, and I could say more. Andrew Button living differently at work in his new employment. People asking questions doesn't make sense without the resurrection. I can look out at all your... Danny York, not here, but Loudnold Home Day, doing the float, doing the prayer booth. What? Doesn't make sense without a resurrection. Katie Shaw, caring for her dad, trying to get the gospel to him, driving down to Massachusetts, praying for him in church. What? No, come on, what? Doesn't make sense without a resurrection. Part of your obedience as being disciples is leading others to obedience. We might not all be called missionaries, but we are all called to be a witness. And guess what? I worked hard on this. They go from being witless to a witness. That's all I'm saying. All right? These guys had no clue. And then look at what happens in verse 34. 
Now they become a witness. Their feet go and their mouths will speak. Your heart will burn, your feet will go, your mouth will speak, saying, the Lord has risen indeed. Amen? I just want to challenge you, don't talk about God at your work. Don't think that that, that gets you off the hook for being a good witness. You've got to talk about who? Jesus. Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone. The gospel is good news. And isn't it interesting, the people that they go to first, those that often need the encouragement the most, are other disciples. Don't we need that church? Why do we gather? Because when you're out there at war, sometimes you forget the resurrection changes everything. If you are here this morning and you're a skeptic, hey, pay attention. Notice that the very first skeptics, it's nothing new, were the disciples. The very first skeptics. If we had time, I would love for you to read down through 36 through the end and see the exact same order of events that Christ does with his disciples. He comes into the room, he says, peace, and they go, ah! They're scared. Because why? They don't believe in a resurrection. They don't get it. And then Christ shares the good news of the gospel with them, which is this. I can't be your savior unless I also suffered first. And it's the same news for us Christians. You do not get to inherit a crown unless you first carry the cross. Christ never was unclear about the freeness of his offer and the totalness of his demands. You say he is our Savior and you also submit to him as your Lord. It is not an either or. He doesn't mess around. It's his own life and it is what he challenges you with. So what does this mean for us? First, come and talk. Did you notice that these disciples, when they were talking, they didn't know much, but they're just walking and talking along their way? What would we call that here at Faith Community Bible Church? Two people walking and talking about the events of this life. Discipleship. Huh. It's like right here in Scripture. Except it doesn't use the word, but it just kind of illustrates what it is. And these two disciples, they get together. They're very concerned. They're very confused. It doesn't seem like they're helping each other much. Jesus tends to show up when we get together. Don't think about these things all on your own. Don't struggle with your guilt all on your own. Don't struggle with your doubts about Christianity all on your own. We live in an iPhone, an iPad, and an iTunes age, and we need to realize the blessedness of the we life. Not we as in, not PlayStation, okay? But the, the, the we, like us together, the church and the goal. Listen to a couple verses as we close. Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. You can write this down. Speaking the truth in love. That sums up discipleship, doesn't it? We are to grow. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, listen to how it talks about the we life, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I would argue you grow more corporately together than you do individually in your own little private time with God in the morning. 1 Peter 2.5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones. How do you build a rock wall in New England? One stone at a time, but how do you actually get it to stand? 
How many points of contact? Three. Right? Each stone has to touch three other stones in order to stay there. You are a living stone built up into a holy body. What you do impacts others. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church's goal, the goal of discipleship, is to see transform lives. Go and talk with somebody else about it. Talk about Jesus. Go to a small group. Come to church. It's in the breaking of bread. It's in the discussion. It's in the fellowship. It's in the community that God shows up. It's in the word that he makes himself known. That's where he can make himself known. That's where he has made himself known. The Lord is risen. He's risen indeed. A great way for you to apply this, teenager, is to come next week to our worthy. Ephesians 1, 4, 1, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Your life will be transformed as it touches other teens' lives that are on fire for Christ with other adult leaders that model this. There is a small group discussion in youth group. They have leaders that help point you to Christ in every single which way, shape, or form, and it changes your hearts will burn. Your feet will go like we've seen teenagers already do, and your mouth will speak. Let's watch this video, and then we'll be dismissed. bless you as you uh, as we get ready to live. Let's go ahead and stand. We are the church. We are gathered to worship in his name and we need each other. Talk with Rachel Button this week on the phone in Tanzania. Asked her, how are you doing? Where is your spiritual life coming from? Is there any part of your life that's gotten clogged up that just needs to be kind of, you know, that well needs to be dug back out so the water can flow freely? She goes, Josh, I'm in God's word. I've never been close to the Lord before in my life, but I don't have a community anymore. Right? We sent her out. We're holding the rope. She's in Tanzania for a year. We're sending Aaron, no, Jesse Reed out with people from Trinity come September. We're going to hold the rope for her. And yet these girls who have been a part of church and all of us that take it for granted and we show up whenever we like and we do this and we don't do that, we don't know how to get involved and what our role is, here are girls that are out there in Africa on mission, on the edge of the war zone, who are saying, what I miss the most is my old Bible study. With people. With a community. That's where life change happens. That's where transformation happens. It's in a church, 
people touching you, you touching them for the gospel. Pray that you'll find a way to read the Bible with somebody this year. And may your hearts burn, may your feet go, and then your mouth will speak and proclaim His excellencies. You are dismissed. Yep, see you.